0: Welcome to Dialogues in Afro-Latinidad, a podcast dedicated to amplifying and elevating Afro-Latin American and Afro-Latinx histories, cultures, and communities. I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Reed-Vasquez. Join us for conversations with experts and artists to learn more about Afro-Latinidad. Venga.
1: Welcome back. My name is Israel Herndon, and I am guest hosting five special episodes with participants from the 2022 Summer Institute on Afro-Latin American and Afro-Latinx Studies funded by the National Endowment for the Humanities. This two-week conference was hosted by the Afro-Latinidad Studies Institute, which also runs this podcast. And today I'm excited to introduce to you Eva Margarita. Ava, originally from South Central Los Angeles, is an Afro-Latinx performance artist and scholar. Starting at Los Angeles City College, Ava went on to receive her BA in Communication Studies from Concordia University, Irvine. Her MA in Performance Studies from New York University and is currently completing doctoral work at the University of Texas at Austin in Rhetoric and African Diasporic Studies. Her performance work explores conjure, ritual, and ceremony, while her critical writings investigate diasporic sociological haunting on census documents with the intention of unsettling colonial forms of gathering. As an artist academic, Eva Margarita is concerned with grief and wake work that allows us to accompany, blur lines, and spill all over each other. At its core, her work is guided by the principle that rituals of everyday life offer an alternative way of existing, one that acknowledges the social, creative, and scholarly forces available for layering logics of gathering. When she's not learning out over deathly subjects, you can find her cooking up a storm, painting scenes from The Simpsons, or gardening. Welcome to the podcast, Ava. So glad to have you here.
0: Yay. Hello. It's good to be here.
1: And just to get things started, you yourself are Afro-Central American. And so what are some of the experiences for you growing up that have led you to the work that you do today?
0: Sure. Um, I grew up in South Central Los Angeles, which, um, if you know anything about Los Angeles, is predominantly Mexican community. Um, So... And predominantly, like light-skinned Latinos, so mm. not very many Afro-Latino people out there. But I had an experience um, in my youth organization. I went to like—I I wouldn't say I was like in a regular after-school program. We were youth activists.
1: <laughs> like, oh yeah, it's South,
0: <laughs> yeah, South Central Youth Empower Through Action, which was a program that was founded actually by Karen Bass, who is now the mayor of Los Angeles. But it was one of the first things that she put together in my neighborhood, and. Um, I went and I remember at like 17 years old for the first time hearing someone say the words like Afro-Latino mm. and then putting me also in that context and I remember hearing that and for the first time I was like oh shit that is me like mm. I there's there, now there's a word. Because I think that my family, we just kind of like live regular lives and just kind of joke about being Black and, and just saying negro, moreno, and that was always like around the house. But I think having an experience that like turns on a light bulb for you like that oh, yeah, um, definitely. makes you want to pursue, um, I would say like what identity means and how that question like really impacts our lives on the everyday. So I think, yeah, it started there, but has only grown into more and more levels. I mean, now at a graduate, a graduate level, I study racial subject formation, um, and really specifically, what is that race question doing when Afro-Latinos are asked and don't know how to answer?
1: Mm. And your work includes art and also the academic work. So how would you describe what it is that you do and what your passions are in this area?
0: Yeah, so I would say my work um, lives in two houses, either in the wake or in the hold. Um, that is uh, a concept that was brought forth by like Christina Sharpe um, in her book, um, In the Wake, um, that came out um, a few years ago. Um, but in it, she talks about like the wake being this aspect of a state of consciousness, uh, a ritual of mourning, um, and the impossibility of ever forgetting the slave ship. And so for me, um, that means that any engagement with Blackness that I have is in terms of like an art realm or in the wake is often um, like using grief or grievance and bringing those two things in conversation with one another to think about the ways that we don't just come together, um, but we start to transform love, even when we've lost something, because if anything, like Black people know how to lose something. And what it means like to be lost to be dispossessed and to try to like find yourself and to find community in that. Uh, but then the work in the hold is that that work that I would say recognizes that we are in a post, you know, quote unquote, colonial state where we're working within and beyond politics to try to make sense of ourselves. Um so that comes in like the 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 data or the census work um and thinking about how afro-Latino or afro-latinx people, um, engage with something that may or may not best reflect their nuanced identity.
1: And for the performance work that you do, uh, one of the things that I think about is when I hear the word performance, sometimes I think there's an implication that it's pretend, but I, at least from what I can see from your work is like this grief is very real. And so for you, what does it mean to perform grief and what does that look like?
0: Ooh, what a question. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that, oh man, working with grief for me means working with something that we often think is unbearable. Um, I I think that some of that means that you kind of have to feel your way out there. Um, you know, I, I also think like when we say like performance and we think pretend, I think like some of it, it feels like, oh yeah, like that's theater, right? That's the spectacle of it all. Mm-hmm. But so much of it is real. So much of performance is put out there to make a critique. Um, In one sense, like I Suli Inidio, who is the Director of Ethnic Studies over at Pitt, she and I are working in collaboration to do a breathwork, and opera piece called Requiem for Black Grief. And in that grief, um, we do some breathwork, but we also you know, I collapse. We say, we have our audience engage and say the names of Black women who have been killed by police or passed on. And then Suli goes on and does a, a phenomenal um, requiem. And we engage the audience in such a way where this isn't pretend. You have to recognize the way like the audience is also acting by the very nature of showing up. And if I think that the audience is accountable here, then as a performance, it shares agency. It's not just me. It's you. We're already here. Like the grief already started before you walked in the room. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's also that if it's my, if performance is going to critique, then hopefully it changes your mind or gets you like the ball rolling on thinking about grief in this way, grief that you can be held, can be transformed, can be acknowledged in ways that aren't often acknowledged in our everyday lives.
1: Mm. And as you're using this artwork to critique, what are some of the common critiques that you incorporate into the work that you do?
0: Um, common critiques that I incorporate into the work that I do? I don't know, <laughs> um, how do I, can, or, you, or maybe, can you reframe the question? Yes, yes,
1: maybe, maybe a better way of looking at it is this, is Uh, You've mentioned uh, living in the post-colonial world and the impact of that. So there's that. And so I guess maybe a better way of of phrasing it is like, what are the influences of your work? Because there's the anti-colonial, there's some feminist work, there's also... Black studies. There's also, you know, Latino studies. Oh, but yeah. what are some of the influences
0: of? Oh, it's that? all those things. <laughs> oh, I, I, I would say, oh, it is at the cross section of um, performance scholarship and um, spirituality, and spirituality in whatever way you find it. And I think in that sense, that's where it becomes really Afro diasporic. It's really, I think, when we often think about grief, we think about what is said and what is enacted. But there is so much that we don't have the words for. And so um, I I think we have to work with the feeling of it with the brush of it like thinking about like the performance itself is also scholarship, right? But this is mm. also it's familial. I think about the ways that like I, I think about like conjure or or like act making, you know. And some of those ways come about from like, oh I my grandmother taught me how to make this this way. Or you know if I'm if I'm doing like a cooking thing then I have to make sure that like the the salt goes in my left hand my left hand I pinch it with my right and then I clap the rest in and if you don't do the thing at the end then like the flu- the food is not gonna have flavor um, but those are also things that get passed on and that I could never forget you know because it's not it was never meant to be written down in um, mm. that sense like those recipes are very much the ways of recipes the ways of learning process. Um, and and greatly influences my work because I think so much of it is just you got to feel it out um, and know when it's and when it just like it fills your heart and then and that feels right and I think
1: the other thing is watching some of your performances there there is something that I kind of notice with the color and the choices of black and white and so could you talk a little bit about the significance of those choices for you
0: yeah so i'm often wearing a white dress um i think there's only one time i've ever when i performed and then i changed into a black dress <laughs> mm. um so that was a good catch um but one it does nod to afro-latin ritual um uh, to mm orishas to um, church um, leaders to those who have often been like a guide Um, and I hope that the work does that but from an artistic point of view it's a blank canvas it's really important Mm -hmm. for me for people to see how just how stained the dress gets and how many times a dress comes back and what are the things that stain it. Um, so often what is stained those dresses has been activated charcoal that I make um, from poplar wood and coconut shells. Um, and then that'll cook over a process of three to nine days, depending on the ritual that's happening. Um, I don't think I've ever stained something that wasn't with activated charcoal. Mm-hmm. Um, even when I thought about, we did, I did a, a piece called Central's Village. Um, that piece, the water was stained or it was blackened with activated charcoal. That is often, again, a mix of poplar wood and coconut shells to get at the the Americanness and how like blackness is hemispheric. It's not just US Americans, it's Caribbean. Yeah. Like it's like Central Americans, it's South Americans. All those things are in combination and are in conversation with one another. Um, and so it's also like when th- when something becomes blackened, It's also to say that there's a process to like the way that like we, um, the way that we come to like engage with one another with water, with history, with a blank canvas, with the thing that's being critiqued in the piece that's out there. So the colors, they are, they're not only like, you know, a critique of social formation, Mm -hmm. they're also like a nod to like black studies and black people everywhere. And the ways that we come together Um, without ever having been spoken. It's just like, it's in you, it's on you, um, and you felt it through you. Mm.
1: Yes, thank you for that explanation. It was one of the things that really stood out to me, specifically because it is grief work. I think oftentimes the Black dress is associated with grief. So I think having that explanation really brings a new richness to Oh, yeah.
0: I also feel like I, I mean, I, I've i studied a funeral or two. Um, <laughs> and I, <laughs> I love like New Orleans rituals of having the whole family and dress the whole family dressed in white, and having a parade. I love, you know, um, rituals in Asia where the, you show up to white in a funeral. I think there's something far more celebratory about that. Um, and it's it's like, it's also like the opening um, like the blank opening as a, as opposed to like the dark void.
1: Hmm. Okay. I love that too. That bringing in even the blackness, even in that choice. As yeah. Well. Yes. And I think also too, for some of your work on the census, you also bring grief into that as well. So could you talk a little bit about how grief informs the work that you do on the census?
0: Oh, Yeah. Um, I, I think it's how I got there. Mm. Um, when my dad passed away, I didn't know what to write for his race because I didn't know. I don't know. I was like, I I studied race and ethnicity and, and there, there, you know, there's a difference between how you see you and how the outside sees you, right? And I realized, you know, I was doing census work and there was no word for Afro-Latino. There was no word for like this very, like this hybrid subject that lived at that cross section between ethnicity and race because of how much it embodied and how much it's spilled over. And um, I don't know, I, it, was, it was in the pandemic. So I was like filling out a death uh, certificate over the phone. Mm. And I didn't know what to say. And I didn't know that you could like fill in the blank. And um, I started to stutter and I'm like, well, negro. And I was like, well, oh, I, I just, people don't say that on a, that's, and then, and then I was like, black, but then it, that didn't feel right. My dad wouldn't have called himself like black. He would have said like negro or something. And, and then the woman stops me and she goes, ma'am, we will write whatever you want us to write. Mm. And I said, Afro Latino. And they took that. And there was something really cathartic about that moment. And then a few months later, I was feeling I was helping my aunt fill out a census form, and the terms didn't quite make sense to her. There was no like Negro or Negro um, option, um, and it says Black or African American. And then the states that are lit or the um, the countries that are listed in there are um, are African countries. They they don't you know depict Latin America. They don't say Panama on there. They don't say Guatemala like where my family is from. So my aunt didn't quite know how to fill that out. And then there was that fill-in-the-box option again, where she was like, no, write in negra, like, put negra, you soy negra. Mm, And yeah. um, I, I like, I, 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 I put that in for her. And I realized that those two things, like that option of, uh, of not just like reinvention, but of like self-assertion of like reformulation was available in both these contexts in like a fill in the blank option that maybe did not serve the needs of the state at that time. Because the thing is like when you fill in a blank then like the census has to code things out and like it some, some would argue that it becomes statistically um, irrelevant because it doesn't make enough of a, a notch. But I would argue that like most people who are taking the census are not viewing it from the function of the same function as the state is. The state is looking to identify inequity Um, in order to address inequity. That's the goal, right? Uh, And some others would say, like, if you want to say, it's also to identify individuals and social things. It's also a a civil rights thing. Again, if you can't identify inequity, then you can't address it. But we're also finding that people don't just want for you to address the inequity and to find me and to locate me. But they're saying, hey, get it right. Like, call me the name that I want to be called. Yeah. Because it's not just about identifying a particular inequity. It's if you're gonna find me, you're gonna find me in the way that I lead you to me. And I think that there's something really powerful and subversive about that. I understand that analytically it can be dangerous, but so much of like the state, the nation, of what it means to be in a post-colony is dangerous. So mm-hmm. why not make people pay attention to the ways that like you you fly just under the radar by like subverting by filling in a, a blank. With something that isn't already given, because like those things, identity, like that's not already a given for some people.
1: Mm. Yeah. And I think even being able to take ownership of your own identity, because I think so often identity, especially for folks who are in- oppressed, whether that's racially or, you know, any other kind of way, it's like these identities get projected onto them. And so I think having the opportunity to take ownership of identity is something that's really powerful. and I don't know. I think that there are some times where it's explicitly resistance and then there's other times where it's like this is this is just who I this is just who I am, you know. So yeah.
0: but I think like you know to to bring it back around to how did you get into this work and like hearing someone finally say something that I was like, oh, that's me. Oh, that's oh, I can say that. Like mm-hmm. oh, I can I can say a, a thing that other people aren't saying. Oh, I can find all these moments where I can assert my own identity and make that make sense to not just me, but to my community and to the world. I think those moments come up far more often than we realize. Hmm. And
1: giving now that you've talked a little bit about some of your academic work and your artistic work, You were also a participant in our NEH Transnational Dialogues Conference. And so with that in mind, how did the conference expand on your previous scholarship?
0: Oh, I walked away with so many good reading lists. (laughs) Oh, oh, and I I just I also loved the opportunity to meet with some of my favorite scholars, my favorite Afro-Latin scholars that were um, speakers and participants of the event. I, I think like it was such like a rich experience um, in in being able to build a network of people who are doing something in the same realm. Because when we go back to our institutions, we're oftentimes the only people doing this. Like I am certainly the only Afro-Latina person in my entire department and possibly mm. in this whole building. So when you have a room full of people that are talking about that it feels so good it feels like like chatter you know it feels like in the distance there's music playing somewhere you know mm-hmm. um, and i also really loved the opportunity to meet with solima rotero who um, wrote archives of conjure um, stories of the afro-latin next dead which came out just as i was writing my master's thesis and that book became my bible it was my ritual i i studied every page and she was a speaker and i had the opportunity to meet one on one with her um and to have her like you know read through some of my current work and expand on it and affirm me in ways that i didn't know i needed i mean man i could have fangirled i promise i was a professional but <laughs> <laughs> i was inside i was fangirling so hard <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: and what were some of your favorite topics or Moments from the conference.
0: Oh, oh! I loved having lunch with with um with the other graduate students. I loved that I met Suli Nidio, who is now one of my my collaborators for this work. That I I mean, one of my favorite things was realizing that we were two artists at the conference and that we just needed to do something to get together and within 15 minutes we had written out like an entire narrative and for a piece that and a performance that we wanted to do a performance that we put on um at nyu's praxis conference just a few weeks ago and that we will put on again um at the association for theater and higher educations conference as a workshop so it's something that's growing and i think like to make those connections that you can make work that makes you happy and Mm. to do that with people who don't just look like you but share similar experiences and want to forward um performative critiques I think is incredibly powerful it's again it's 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 music it's opera it's if we are if we've started with just two people you know it's, it's also going like it's we're scaling up so there will be eventually like a composer. We'll eventually have like a percussionist, maybe a choir. This thing, like you know, it's only going oh, up from wow. here. <laughs> and I, I think like it's really exciting for um for black art that t- speaks to grief in ways that aren't just reasserting trauma. Mm. I think that we can certainly recognize the trauma that gets us here. But I think that there are ways of working with it so that we can find ways to come back to celebration, to come back to the ways that we gather and to come back to love. If there's one thing that Black Studies has taught me, it's that through through the funk, through the work, through the labor, we know how to love, how to feel for one another, how to care for one another. And I think that this performance and many other Afro-Latin performances have the potential to do that.
1: Yeah, I think that all the work that you and Zuli are doing is, you know, really important and getting to bring in other folks and also making space for the grief is is the important work here. And so what were some of your key takeaways from the conference?
0: We need more black people doing this work. Mm. We need more Afro-Latinx people doing this work. There are not enough of us in the room. I I still feel like while I appreciate the conversation, um, academia is an incredibly white space. Yeah. And even with a conference that has a theme we still run the danger of being the minority in the room. And it is, um, it, it reminds you of the reasons why you wanna protect and bring your community in.
1: Mm-hmm. It
0: reminds you to have the conversation, not just in that room, but with your friends, with your colleagues, with your cousins when you go back. It reminds you you know, to leave the back door open so that someone can find a way in. Um, we still need more of us in the room um, because it's important that those of us who know the experience best do this work so that people aren't just talking about us. They're talking with us.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's super important and something that we have to be more mindful of as we continue to do this work. And, um, I've enjoyed talking to you today, but to leave our listeners who are interested in what you're saying, what are some resources that you can recommend for them to check out?
0: Oh man, I will always recommend Solimar Ortero's Archives of Conjures: Stories of the Latinx Dead. Oh, it is. Uh, it's in my canon. It's on my. Uh, it's. Uh, it's it's on my bookshelf. Um, Christina Sharp's In the Wake. Um, Fred Moten Stefano Harney's The Undercommons and If You Really Love Brown Shit The Sense of Brown by Jose Esteban Muñoz
1: Beautiful Thank you so much for joining me today and we will make sure that those resources are accessible to our listeners on So Thank you Ava for joining me today and for talking about all of the fantastic stuff that you do
0: yay thank you thanks for listening if you enjoyed this episode of Dialogues and Afro Latinidad, please subscribe to our podcast and tell a friend for links to the resources mentioned in the interview visit our website at michellereadvasquez.com forward slash podcast